This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from some of our favorite interviews throughout the week, and of course, highlights from the magazine. Jason, it was week 18. We definitely had some themes this week, and I got to say, virus, big, big time. Some of the front runners throughout the week weighing in on how they are doing when it comes to creating a vaccine. Also, what people have been listening to and buying during these weeks of living with the virus shutdown and also figuring out diversity and inclusion, whether it's NASCAR or in the investment world. Well, and I feel like we're also starting to tease out a theme of how this is affecting everyone and how this is affecting their worldviews. And this week, one of America's richest men, anonymously, we should note, Mm -hmm. opened up to none other than Max Abelson, our lovely colleague. We love talking to him about COVID risk and luck. He's going to give us an insider's view. I realized pretty quickly that there was something sort of important happening in our conversations that I wanted to try to get down on paper if I could. Much more on that conversation later, plus my conversation, Carol, with Howard University President Dr. Wayne Frederick, his school's reopening plans, but also how he's dealing with these dueling crises, not just as a president, but as a father. Yeah, and his personal story is really, really impressive. So looking forward to that conversation. But first up, Jason, we've got to talk about the vaccine because there are a lot of headlines on the Bloomberg about uh, the pursuit of that by a lot of different players. We caught up with Bloomberg News senior writer Stephanie Baker. She wrote the cover story this week. She's been constantly giving us a front row seat when it comes to the virus because of her personal story. This week, she talked to the COVID vaccine front runner who is months ahead of her competition. We talked with Stephanie and the editor of the magazine, Jill Weber. One of the most important people in the world right now, who's an Oxford professor named Sarah Gilbert, who has basically been toiling away on vaccines for coronaviruses, never getting any attention. She had, uh, you know, the the effort that she's... is sort of the culminating effort right now began actually with Ebola and then she went to MERS and lo and behold, at the beginning of the year, all of a sudden a coronavirus pops up and suddenly we have a person who had been working on a very similar project and was able to pivot and basically uh, change some of the uh, approaches that they were looking at. But there, she is months ahead of where we think other people are in terms of maybe being able to have a viable uh, a vaccine. And Stephanie, um, I'm just really curious, uh, what what is she like? What is Sarah Gilbert like? Yeah, I mean, she's really interesting. I, I felt a bit like um, a, a pestering student asking for, you know, what the next homework assignment would be. You know, she has, <laughs> she's extraordinarily sort of focused and efficient and conscious of um, keeping her eye on the prize in terms of not wasting her time, you know, on things that are not relevant. And that, it's just, it comes across in every interaction I have with her. Um, You know, she's a serious-minded scientist, um, and she knows that, you know, you get the sense when you speak to her, she knows that this is her moment, that, you know, years of research might finally pay off because of a sort of confluence of events Um, and, you know, that she needs to, you know, really just keep on with it, keep on top of it and take one challenge at a time uh, to try to, you know, sort of push this thing forward and hopefully across the line. 
um, you know, she's a scientist. She's not. She's not a warm and fuzzy person. She's. She's. Mm-hmm. You know. But I. I wouldn't want. I, I would want someone to be as serious-minded as she is. Um, if you're looking for someone to save us from this mess. So, so Stephanie, there's there's dozens. I think in the hundreds of efforts now under underway to actually get this vaccine. What makes the Oxford approach? different than uh, some of these other ones, including, you know, Moderna came up as one that um, the market got really excited about. What What is Oxford's approach here? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest differences is the safety profile. And, you know, we'll find out more about the Oxford vaccine when they report preliminary results from their phase one uh, trial uh, on Monday. Um, but all along, um, Sarah Gilbert has expressed you know, confidence in the safety profile of, of this vaccine, that they've tested it in something like 12 different vaccines. Those vaccines haven't won approval, but they've, that, that platform, the technology that she's using has been in thousands of people already. So they have a fairly confident sense of, you know, what the adverse event, you know, profile of this vaccine would be. And they're, they're quite confident that that's not a huge Hurdle, and I think you know some of the results that came out from Moderna. There, the, the adverse event profile did take some analysts by surprise. Um, and if you think about, we need a vaccine for not millions, but potentially billions of people. If you've got five, ten, twenty percent adverse event profile, and you multiply that by the number of people that are going to need to to have a vaccine, that's huge, right? So we need something that is safe, primarily be able to roll it out to a large number of people. Obviously, it's extraordinarily competitive. You know, I think, you know, there's a there's a race to get there first. Um, You know, I did look at, for instance, the last, the the polio vaccine that was developed by Jonas Salk, who was, you know, you know, given banner headlines as, you know, the one who saved the world from uh, this debilitating disease polio. You know, I, I've also often thought that whoever gets to, to a vaccine first in this case, even if it's not perfect, will be kind of the Jonas Salk of our times. Um, I think there is, you know, even with the competitive nature of this, I think there is collaboration uh, among scientists, and you see it on social media, and you see it in through the research reports. And one of the things that Sarah Gilbert said to me is, you know, no one knows how strong the immune response really needs to be to achieve protection and that's Bloomberg News senior writer Stephanie Baker and Business Week editor Joel Weber. Listen, this is the only story in many ways that matters, the vaccine. That's right. Coming up next, we actually caught up with another front runner. We're talking about the CEO of Inovio Pharmaceuticals. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. This week, it really was dominated by, I think, some optimism, Carol, dare I say it, in week 18 about a vaccine. Right, from the likes of Moderna, AstraZeneca, and some others. Those stocks moved because of some upbeat news about the vaccine. We caught up with Inovio Pharmaceuticals. They, Jason, are among the front runners, uh, among those looking to create a vaccine for COVID-19. We talked specifically with the president and CEO of Inovio, Dr. Joseph Kim. There's many companies uh, like Inovio and others who are blazing the trail uh, just in the last six months uh, or so uh, trying to uh, make history in, in developing uh, several vaccines uh, uh, that can be 
uh, approved to be used uh, both safely and effectively against this uh, horrible pandemic. So tell us where you are and what you've learned so far, Dr. Kim. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we just uh, reported on the preliminary data in our first uh, clinical study involving 40 healthy volunteers uh, in the ages of 18 to 50. Uh, and we demonstrated very strong safety, uh, one of the safest vaccine platforms uh, in this uh, COVID-19 race, and also demonstrating greater than 90% of our participants having uh, strong overall immune responses in a balanced way, both in uh, antibody responses, as well as having T-cell responses, which is another arm of the immune system that is very important for protecting against viral disease. Dr. Kim, when that came out, that was a couple of weeks ago, and your you know, investors certainly reacted to it. A Stiefel analyst said investors are likely to focus on the paucity of information in the release, which may raise more questions than answers. When are you going to publish your peer-reviewed immune response data, and, and where will you, will you publish it? And any update on when larger trials will start here? Yeah, the second part of that question first. So uh, we're looking to start our phase two slash three efficacy trials uh, upon getting regulatory concurrence this summer. So we're still on track uh, for that. Uh, in terms of the phase one data, uh, we are, as we stated, looking forward to publishing it in a peer-reviewed um, publication, uh, hopefully in the next uh, a few weeks as well. So when you think about the timeline here, Dr. Kim, what is a reasonable timeline to get your first vaccine available for use? And I think everyone wants to know when it will be widely available. Yeah, you know, uh, Inovio as well as other companies are racing against this virus. Uh, to bring a safe and effective vaccine to the public as soon as possible. Uh, that all depends on how well the trials go in phase two and phase three stages. Uh, and demonstrating true efficacy and safety of the vaccine. Uh, the FDA just uh, released a guidance uh, document to the industry, uh, which provides their thoughts on what it's going to require. And, you know, it, it, it's Certainly as rapidly as we're running, uh, all of us, uh, there's dozens of companies uh, around the world trying to get the vaccine. Uh, it's going to take some time, but I think uh, there's been a lot of incremental successes in phase one and, and many companies going into phase two, uh, including our plans at Inovio. Is, is a 2020 wide release too much to hope for? Well, I think that's the goal. And that certainly is an aspiration that many of us in the field have. It really depends, and, and, and uh, ironically, it also depends on how bad the infection is uh, around us. Uh, you know, that would put a pressure or balance to the, the, the uh, benefits and the cost of having uh, a, vaccines, a set of vaccines approved earlier, conditionally. I mean, these are the things that the FDA and the other policymakers will have to to uh, decide on. 
what we focus on at Inovio, and I'm assuming other companies as well, is to execute the next steps in, in the development, so next trials, next uh, testing, uh, so that we will be in a proper position to get the vaccines approved uh, at, through this gauntlet. Uh, you know, it, it typically takes up to 10 years or longer to get a vaccine approved. Right. And everyone started, you know, from, from day one at the same place in January. So, you know, we're, we're moving in a historical pace. But right. It's never fast enough uh, because there are people dying every day. You said, though, how bad the infection is around us will determine potentially, I guess, how regulators, how quickly they want to move things along. If we don't see a second surge or if cases seem to die down, does this whole movement of finding a vaccine slow down as well globally? Well, that's, that's a, always a potential, and certainly that will be great for the society. Um, but as we're in the middle of still the first wave, and there's many uh, experts predicting the second wave, all we can do as vaccine developers is focus on our objective, which is to test properly the safety and efficacy of the vaccine and be ready uh, when we're called upon. Some of your peers have received larger government funding or significant amount of funding. What about for you guys? Do you see getting any additional funds from the government? Well, I think uh, absolutely. I, I think uh, Inovio has already received uh, extensive external funding uh, from U.S. Department of Defense just recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, as well as uh, from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and CEPI in the past. That's Novio Pharmaceuticals President and CEO, Dr. Joseph Kim. That stock has been on a tear like so many biotech and pharma companies this year. There are a lot of companies, Jason, out there looking for a cure for COVID-19, specifically a vaccine. What I loved about this conversation is this was one of those that I got off air, I came home, had dinner, and I said, here's what I learned about the vaccine <laughs> from this CEO. Yeah. And I, I, that was very purposeful, I think, on our part to essentially say, all right, all right, let's get down to brass tacks. How many shots are we talking about? When's this going to be out? What do we need to be thinking about? Because ultimately, that's what matters. I mean, I'm going to leave the science to the scientists. What right. I want to know is, how is this going to affect, candidly, me, my family, my community, and the world in terms of of getting back to whatever the next normal is going to be. Well, and what's interesting, Jason, as the traditional pharma and biotech world hunt for a virus vaccine, others are seeking out more non-traditional methods to help them get through this stressful time. Simply put, demand for cannabis, folks, it is up. And we checked in with one of the largest players in the United States, the co-founder of Cureleaf, Boris Jordan. That's coming up next. Can't wait for that. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing some of the most important and informative conversations we have throughout the week on our daily radio show. Reminder to everybody, we know the news once again uh, happening fast and furiously and these interviews happening in real time. Well, and as the pandemic continues, Carol, cannabis is one of the surprise winners here. We were delighted to catch up with Cureleaf's executive chairman and co-founder, Boris Jordan. Quick reminder, he was part of the Bloomberg 50. We actually sat down with him. Remember that when we Mm -hmm. used to physically do interviews with people in the same place? Well, we did that uh, at a big Bloomberg 50 event in New York City back in December. A lot has changed and actually for the better with Cureleaf. Uh, We've seen a substantial increase in foot traffic. Um, We've also seen substantial increases in 
in um, uh, basket sizes. So basket sizes in some of our states almost doubled uh, in size from what they used to be. Uh, and foot traffic is up tremendously. Um, I would say that okay. um, we're I, seeing over 30% growth. That's what I wanted to know. Because, you know, we love numbers. So the foot traffic and the basket uh, increases. Can you just say that again? Yeah, foot traffic and basket increases uh, together with revenue all about 30% uh, quarter over quarter. Wow. Wow. And so uh, obviously a a bit unanticipated as everything was about this pandemic. I I mean, tell us what's what's driving that. So one of the things that we've noticed is is that we're seeing a new customer come into the stores now, Um, an older customer uh, dealing with um, uh, things like, uh, you know, stress, uh, anxiety during COVID, uh, wanting to get off of uh, uh, prescribed drugs uh, from, you know, from um, uh, uh, drug companies and moving on to more natural products. And so we've seen a huge surge, particularly in the sleep aid category, wow. uh, you know, lozenges, tinctures, um, uh, gummies, that kind of thing, helping particularly the older folks uh, uh, deal with the uh, COVID stress and anxiety. And that's been a really new customer base. I'm, I'm not kidding you when I tell you that we've seen customers over 80 years of age coming into our store buying these products. And that's a new thing for you guys? Yes. I, I yeah. Uh, generally, the medical side, so we, as you know, we have two different lines. We have right. the CureLeaf line, which is a wellness line, and selected the adult use line. Generally, the CureLeaf line does see an older, so it's sort of an average of 52 years of age customer. But we've seen a much older customer coming into the stores. We've seen people in their late 60s, 70s, and I said even 80s, coming into the stores and buying sleep aids as a whole. And I think sleep is going to be a major, major category on the wellness side of cannabis. I think you're exactly right. I mean, we're seeing that more and more. I mean, Ariana Huffington certainly was onto something when she uh, started talking about that a few years ago. So, Boris, what did you have to do in your retail locations, because as foot traffic increases, you know, that used to be just like, hey, great, there are more people. But now in the age of COVID and the age of social distancing, what did you have to do and and how much did you have to do to change out your stores? We were very lucky that the governors uh, really went out and, and, and liberalized some of the rules. So one of the things we had to incorporate is online ordering. Mm-hmm. So we incorporated online ordering in all of the states. We did curbside pickup in all of the states. So people really would order online. They'd pay. We now have five of our states so using debit cards, which is a new product for cannabis. Some it used to be all cash. Right. Now we're seeing more and more banks accepting debit cards and payment processors. And so debit cards, and that's one of the reasons we're seeing the increase in basket size. Because in the past, if you came to the store, with $100 in your pocket, you can only buy $100 a product. Mm. Now you're coming in um, with a debit card. You've got a bigger balance on the debit card than $100. You can actually buy more products. So, so the debit cards actually helped a lot. So it was really curbside pickup. It was, it was online ordering. Um, it was, it was you know, social distancing in the store. So we had to add, we had to do all the things, you know, add the plexiglass right. in all the stores. Uh, we had to control traffic, all these things, because traffic was extensive. I mean, our New Jersey store processes over a thousand customers a day. Wow. wow. So, Boris, is it fair to say that from a regulatory perspective, especially when it comes to payments and things like that, were there things that were accelerated owing to the pandemic and some of the rules that had to come into place, maybe things you had been looking for before that maybe happened a little more quickly? 
Yes, again, it's happened at the state level. The federal level hasn't done anything right. yet to to help the industry, but the states did because they were concerned about the well-being. They, I mean, cannabis was made essential um, uh, service, and therefore they were concerned about the well-being of both the people working in the stores uh, and the company as well as the patients. And so the states liberalized these rules, working together with the cannabis companies in their respective states and finding ways to m- deliver these products in a safer way. And that's what we were able to do. And that's Kira Leaf, Executive Chairman, Co-Founder Boris Jordan, joining us. Obviously, they have been able to meet what is, by all accounts, huge demand. They're also taking advantage of some weakness in the market, Carol, the broader mm-hmm. market, some consolidation going on when it comes to cannabis. Yeah, and we also talked to him about the regulatory front. He says that he expects, you know, with 80% of the U.S. having access to recreational cannabis by next year, that should put pressure on Congress to legalize and clarify the industry. So good to get him to weigh in on that. Okay, so demand for cannabis is up. So too is demand for listening to podcasts coming up we get more on that from the chief operating officer at Wondery. Of course a whole separate segment is what happens when you put the two together. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had, Carol and I did, on our Bloomberg Business Week daily radio show. I love podcasts, Carol. I know you do. You're always suggesting, you should be listening to this, you should be listening to that one. Um, What's interesting is the podcast producer, Jason Wondery, they launched its app last month. They are tapping specifically into increased demand for podcasts. That is happening right now. Jen Sargent is the Chief Operating Officer at Wondery. She's also working on expanding the podcaster's audience and developing TV, book, and film projects from its library of podcast programs. She talked with us about all of that. What we've seen during the pandemic is actually uh, people really leaning in to listening to podcasts. And I think as we've all been social distancing and changing our habits and spending more time at home, uh, consumers have found all these different ways uh, to be listening to podcasts, whether it's cooking or gardening or walking the dog um, or just cleaning around the house. Podcasts uh, are a great piece of kind of media to take with you on the go and and really be able to kind of multitask something else around your house. And as a result, um, we've really seen um, some some great lift in listening um, recently. And we've also seen shifts in behavior where, you know, prior to the pandemic, it was all about commuting and your time at the gym. And, And those were two of the big use cases for for podcasts. But now we see listening throughout the day and on the weekends. And, and just, um, you know, we can see consumers really um, listening in a different way. And I have a lot of theories of, of why that's happening right now, but um, it, it's been a really positive time for podcasts. I'll also say that, it, you know, just on the production side of things, um, we've been able to keep producing podcasts right. during the pandemic. And right. I think, you know, um, I mean, I don't know about YouTube, but I've kind of caught up on my Netflix and my Hulu and 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 uh, with TV production uh, on hold right now. Um, it's this source of new content. So uh, for Wondery, but but all the podcasting um, publishers out there, most of us have been able to adapt and to really um, keep keep things moving with new content. We've seen interest from talent who would otherwise be busy with TV production getting involved in podcasts. So for the whole ecosystem, I, I, th- I think we've, we've seen a great lift. 
that's so funny that you said that because just before Jason was like, you got to watch this. Cause, and I said, you know, I've been running out of things to watch. What's interesting is I'm curious, you said that kind of the trends are cha- changing. It's not just people commuting, obviously, anymore, but they're listening at all different times. What are people listening to, Jen? Yeah, so, um, uh, well, especially when um, the, the, the stay-at-home orders first happened, we saw a lot of people um, listening to news, um, listening to um, to uh, current information. Um, but then we also saw that balanced with um, comedy and entertainment and things that would give people kind of a break and an escape, um, which is not surprising. Um, now we're seeing that that pretty much all categories are, um, you know, receiving a lot of listenership at this point. But but definitely at the start of the pandemic, it, it, it was news, uh, entertainment and and personal growth is the other the mm. other category, self-help, personal growth. So, you know, it's interesting, Jen, um, I was thinking about you guys in terms of the type of content you create. And I, I'm almost thinking to some extent, you, it feels a little bit like a Disney approach where content can ultimately have multiple revenue streams, online podcast streaming, etc. And I do wonder how you approach it. How do you look at when you're, you know, thinking about either acquiring or producing some content? Are you thinking about, okay, how can we spread this out as, as much as possible? Yes, and that has absolutely been evolving as, as we've grown. Um, you know, we're, we're known for our immersive, character-driven storytelling. We really try to put you, the listener, in the middle of the story and, and get you completely, you know, enveloped in it. Um, and we, we think about it now as um, more than just a podcast. We really think about developing a story that then can take on a life of its own. Um, I mean, our, our, our broader goal is really to be the first place consumers think of when they think of high-quality, immersive storytelling. And today that happens to be with podcasts, but we know in the future it's very likely that a consumer could encounter us first as a TV show or a book um, and then make their way back to the podcast. Um, and so, um, you know, as we think about different revenue streams, I mean, advertising is certainly um, our bread and butter and was one of the earliest, um, you know, revenue streams to emerge for us and, and everyone else in podcasting. Um, but as we uh, started to create hits like, like The Shrink Next Door, like Dr. Death, um, we saw this opportunity to develop the IP into television shows. And at this point, 16 of our projects are in various stages of TV development. Uh, wow. We have one of our projects um, that has, is on its way to becoming a book. Um, and and this licensing side of it is is not just real, but to your Disney analogy, I mean, I, I, I think we absolutely see it expanding that way. So when we greenlight stories now, we think, Oh, could this be a TV show? Could I mean, we certainly didn't, um, you know, when we were working with Joe Nacera, um, first mm-hmm. right next door, we weren't thinking, oh, this would be so perfect for Paul Rudd and Will right. Ferrell. <laughs> but right. we were doing it. But, but after the fact, yeah, it totally makes sense. It um, makes a lot of sense just, when you think, if you've listened yeah. to the Shrink Next Door you, and you're like, yep, that absolutely checks out. I can see that on the screen. <laughs> So, so talk to us about the subscription model, because I feel like that's something that a lot of podcast publishers have been wrestling with. And, you know, we've seen the Spotify model, we've seen Luminary, we've seen others sort of go for this. Uh, Stitcher, I believe, as well has a premium product. Tell us about the conversations to sort of get Wondery to that point and how you think about it. 
Yeah. I, I mean, part of our motivation um, was really that our listeners were asking for an app. They were asking for a better way, an easier way to access Wondery shows and content, to be able to, to binge content, especially miniseries, to be able to listen ad-free. And um, particular to our style of storytelling, we do a lot of uh, serialized miniseries and serialized always-on shows. And um, for many of our shows, like a Business Wars or, or Tides of History, um, et cetera, they, we're, we have dozens of seasons at this point. And your average podcast app doesn't allow you to navigate right. um, elegantly between seasons. And so even just tracking down the season of Business Wars that you want to listen to is, is hard in a general market app. And when we looked around at the market, we felt like that's, that's, what, that's what was out there. I mean... Stitcher, Luminary, Apple, they're all great apps, but they're general market, one-size-fits-all apps. And we really wanted to create a curated experience. We wanted it to be on brand. We wanted it to feel immersive and premium like our, our shows do. And we really just wanted to super serve that that Wondery listener. Um, that was a big part of it. Um, the other piece of it, which is you know was a challenge for us, and I think it's a challenge for, for most publishers out there, is that we, we but, but by by distributing our content through these third parties, we miss that direct connection with the listener and we don't get data back right. that really um, helps us. And without the data, we're kind of flying blind when we're, when we're making the next you know, piece of content or we're trying to market it. So having some first party data that, um, that we can use to inform our marketing and content decisions is, is really game changing. Um, so that was another part of it for us um, as we thought about uh, creating, creating an app like this. Is it only going to be, I don't mean only, but I mean, will it be exclusively Wondery content or will you open it up to others that kind of fit within the Wondery world? Yeah, um, so it will be both Wondery content and Wondery partner content, but we're not an aggregator. We're not trying to be the Netflix of podcasts and it won't be everything under the sun. It'll only be podcasts where we have a partnership, whether we've partnered with Bloomberg or or someone like, um, like uh, you know, uh, all Things Comedy or The Athletic, whoever we're partnering with, that might be within the app and then all of our Wondery Originals. And we felt like now was the time to do this because we had the breadth and depth of content. We have a beloved catalog. We have these big hits. Um, we had enough um, brand equity and listeners to tap into um, to be able to launch this type of app now. Jen, uh, only about a minute or so to go. What was something that you thought, oh, you know, this may be okay, and then it just caught fire? Was, it, was there a specific either type of content or a specific piece of content uh, that really surprised you on the upside? Um, you know, uh, one that I was recently surprised about was Blood Ties. So we had um, Blood Ties is an audio drama that we launched uh, right before the holidays um, this past year. And we had dabbled in audio drama when Wondery first launched. And for whatever reason, the market wasn't mature enough. Maybe there wasn't enough demand. But, you know, they, they, they did okay, but we weren't really able to get a blockbuster hit out of, out of the fiction side of things. And Blood Ties was a game changer. Mm. It, 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 it completely... Um, surpassed our expectations. That's Wondery Chief Operating Officer Jen Sargent. Jason, I thought it was very interesting. You know, they launched their app in June, and a lot of it is about having access to their own data. That's very valuable, right, in terms of building a business and really understanding your customer. 
Well, and I will say quick plug as it relates to Wondery and Bloomberg. Yeah. Uh, our friend Joe Sarah, a new episode of The Shrink Next Door. It was out this week. I listened to it. It's bananas, as the whole series has been. It's going to be a movie, so check that out. Uh, always like to give a plug to The Shrink Next Door. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour, including the billionaire stuck at home with his family like the rest of us, working from home, holding meetings in the virtual world, playing games like Risk with his family, his ongoing conversation with our own Max Abelson. Yeah, amid all that, he's having this series of phone calls with Max Abelson and essentially unburdening himself and giving a window into how he's experiencing this that maybe you wouldn't see anywhere else. Plus, our conversations about diversity continue. We check in with the owner of Richard Petty Motorsports, Andrew Merstein. He talks about NASCAR. That has been a flashpoint for a lot of important conversations. Yeah, he says now Bubba Wallace is the new face of the sport. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. One of our go-to voices amid this pandemic, sort of a gut check in many ways. We love turning to Dr. Iman Abu Zaid, her thoughts on diversity in healthcare, but also in investing, Carol. Right, Jason. She's got the data, and it reminds us why we need to have a diverse approach when it comes to investing. Plus, we catch up with Medallion CEO Andrew Merstein. Speaking of diversity and inclusion, we talk about that as it pertains to NASCAR. That's right. He's an owner of Richard Petty Motorsports, which is the team that Bubba Wallace, of course, drives for. Mm -hmm. He has been at the center of a lot of important conversations in sports. But first, we've been talking about this story all week. I have to say, people were calling me and texting me, <laughs> trying to get to the bottom of this. This anonymous billionaire, great story, Max Abelson, conducted a series of conversations throughout the early stages of the pandemic. And whoa, I was just talking to this guy. My beat it is really um, the Wall Street culture. Like Caroline Gage, my boss, and I think about it as really writing about money and power itself. So it was sort of natural when the pandemic began that uh, on that very first day that the World Health Organization said, okay, this is a pandemic, I called up a Wall Street billionaire and we spoke. And, you know, the, the real organic truth is that I ended up calling him again a few days later and then a few days after that and a few days after that. And I realized pretty quickly that there was something sort of important happening in our conversations that I wanted to try to get down on paper if I could. And what was different? Because it does feel like, based on your conversations, that there was a different tone to maybe some of what you guys were talking about, which is not to say that it's not always real when folks are talking to you. But I don't know. There's a there's a certain um, almost rawness to this, Max, and, and a certain authenticity or, or may, almost vulnerability that comes through in some of this. I'm so moved to hear you say that. I mean, it's really, um, I feel so grateful to have the response to the story from from everyone who enjoyed it, but especially from you two. I mean, you two are such careful and thoughtful leaders of my journalism. It's so satisfying to do reporting that doesn't sort of just um, get lost. You two seem to really read my stories carefully in a way that's so satisfying as a journalist. And I know what you mean about that vulnerability. And, And I'll talk about two different kinds of vulnerability. On the one hand, um, you know, I tried to be my 
some version of my authentic self. You know, when as journalists, um, and this is so true for, for radio journalists as well, I think that sometimes we, it's sort of easy to drift away from the real people we are. And you sort of, you know, maybe you're tired or you're angry or you're a little bored and you sort of just, you know, you just sort of ask the questions and, and, and you know, that's sometimes that mode is totally fine. But in this case, as you two often are with me, I really sort of was my true emotional self. And sometimes he would say things, I'd be like, do you really want to say that? You know, or or, or push back and say, geez, you know, maybe people are angry um, for a reason that's totally different than what you're saying. And that, I think, helped um, make him more vulnerable. Now, I'd like to give genuine credit to him. I mean, this is a thoughtful and interesting person who made himself vulnerable and... At least, you know, people might not like what he has to say, but at least he said it, and at least he was true to himself, and I feel a a sort of immense kind of gratitude for that. You know, Max, you know this so well. We all do. You write about this a lot, about the inequalities that are in our world, and we talk a lot about the wealth gap, and I do wonder, your conversations, did you feel like helped explain it or gave you a sense of hope that there are those who are wealthy, like the billionaire you talked to that kind of understand that this gap is happening and it's it's been laid bare because of the virus. It's been laid bare once again because of what happened to George Floyd. You know, did it give you some hope that he and some of his peers understand this is not good and they care about making it better? Look, I mean, I think that one thing that's only fair to point out is that, you know, one billionaire, one Wall Street billionaire cannot represent all Wall Street billionaires. And mm-hmm. certainly, you know, one one Wall Street billionaire can't represent all rich people. But, you know, I, I will give you my honest answer to that question, Carol, which is that I felt that on, on the one hand, he seemed to clearly recognize, because it's undeniable, how much pain and suffering there is in the world in general, and how much agony in the summer of 2020 when, you know, tens of millions of Americans have lost their jobs, hundreds of thousands of people are dying, and life is full of uncertainty and um, fear for, for, for basically everyone else. But I hope what the story captures is that there, there was something he wasn't able to do. And what he wasn't able to do was um, really imagine a world that would be structurally different. He really did not want to blame systemic problems, and he didn't want to talk about sort of how those systems could be replaced. He's much more interested in incremental change. Mm. And, you know, I think that that's a revealing, um, that that's revealing in this moment when we are really at a divisive moment between those who want um, to, to really abolish some systems that have left many behind and those who merely want to, to reform them. I think it's a genuinely important and stark uh, difference. I really feel, though, that if I learn something from the story, it's that the gap that we've seen um, between the very richest people and the rest of us, that gap is getting Bigger. And that's Bloomberg News finance reporter Max Abelson. I love just the enthusiasm and the earnestness with which he approaches everything. Yeah, it's one of those stories you have to grab a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, settle in, because the back and forth between Max and this individual, it really just gives us another window into how different people are dealing with the virus and really the last 18 weeks of our lives. 
I have to say, one of my favorite Carol Masserisms <laughs> is your going. use of the word individual because it's when you don't know someone's name. And in this case, it's totally appropriate because we don't know who this guy is. Exactly. Only Max knows. All right. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, as schools continue discussing reopening plans, we're going to hear from Howard University President Dr. Wayne Frederick. I really enjoyed this one. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had throughout the week. Another busy week, week 17, no, week 18, see, I had to keep track of it, of working from home. Uh, but those interviews on our daily radio show throughout this week. And this one, I was sorry that I missed it, Jason. Yeah, I was too, only because it was wide ranging. I expected a lot of the Howard University president, and he really delivered. Dr. Wayne Frederick, he has been running the university for a number of years. He's a Mm -hmm. medical doctor, and so he speaks about this in really robust and holistic terms, not just the virus, but also these dueling crises that we're facing as a country. Check it out. We're thinking that we will uh, de-densify our campus, and by that I mean we have 10,000 students. We don't anticipate having Uh, That many, certainly not more than uh, 4,000 students. We have students in uh, schools and colleges uh, that that need uh, the face-to-face interaction, such as medicine, uh, dentistry, um, et cetera. So so we we have to bring students back for that. There's students with clinical practicums uh, that will be there. We we are looking at our dorm assignments as well to see if we can uh, go down to single rooms as well. We're going to have a hybrid, um, some online. Uh, we also are going to have um, the face-to-face uh, classes uh, live streamed as well so students can participate. We want to be also cognizant of the fact that we have students from about 71 countries mm. and uh, 46 states. So uh, the time zones are a challenge and we have to make sure that we can make accommodations there. So you know, lots of precautions, um, lots of PPE, and and making sure that we have the right barriers and social distancing in the classroom. Right. And, you know, Dr. Frederick, it's interesting. I feel like we all, especially in the media, talk a lot about students, and maybe it's because, you know, I have a almost college age uh, teenager, so we talk a lot about it from the student's perspective. Talk to me about your faculty and, and the conversations you're having with them individually and as a group and, and their concerns about coming back. Yeah, our academic deans have been engaging them. Um, the faculty have been fantastic. You know, they have really uh, gone about the business of uh, standing up the online instruction, uh, and, and that has been uh, really fantastic to watch. Uh, the other thing that they have been um, doing that I think is, is uh, very, very helpful is being thoughtful about the classes that don't naturally fit, um, you know, for online. So, for instance, like a physics lab, um, we, because African-Americans are five times more likely to drown, as an example, we have a requirement to take a swimming class at Howard, actually, to graduate. So trying to think creatively of how we do that. At the same time, uh, we have a significant number of faculty who are 65 and over and right. faculty who have comorbidities. We hire, we employ more African-American faculty than any other single institution, higher ed institution in America. And so that also poses a challenge because we recognize that we have an employee base that is, is more at risk for contracting this uh, virus and also having a, a, a bad outcome. So. We, we are being very thoughtful um, about managing that and, and making sure that we 
understand their concerns as well. So talk to me about testing, because I know that you're offering testing uh, at one of your locations uh, for your faculty. Tell me about how that extends, how it works, and, and the role that you're playing in the broader community. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we, we um, have a, a facility uh, that we have uh, stood up in conjunction with a partner uh, out in uh, Ward 7, uh, so it can serve the residents of Ward 7 and 8 that are 95% uh, African-American. Um, we also at our hospital, when we look at the patients that we've been seeing, the vast majority came from these wards. So looking at, at putting those together, we decided that we really needed to get information out there and to get um, testing um, out there as well. And so Bank of America gave us a grant, a $1 million grant, uh, to allow us to stand up a testing site there, and it has been uh, oversubscribed uh, very early on. It, you did not need a doctor's note uh, or anything like that. You have a lot of frontline workers who live there, and therefore we felt that their exposure was significant and that we wanted to really assist them. So it has been really important for us to do that. At the same time, I also want to remind everyone that the elective clinical care that we were providing there uh, was also suspended, and therefore that gave us an opportunity uh, as a group to really put those um, healthcare workers uh, to work, and they really wanted to serve their community. So I also want to thank our staff uh, who, while um, we, we did not have regular clinical activity, really volunteered and stepped in and stepped up to do this. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what is it like in Washington right now with this virus? Because I feel like we're dealing with all these hot spots around the country. What are you seeing yeah. in your community? The mayor in Washington, D.C., I think has done a fantastic job. Um, and so what we're seeing is a continued decline I think just recently we may have had a, a, an uptick on one day of cases, um, which I'm hoping is just strictly due to testing. But she's been really good. She's been um, open about educating everyone, about um, ensuring that they're wearing masks in public, um, et cetera. Uh, you know, she's been, I think she's, had, she's run a very, very thoughtful uh, process and that was very engaging as well. I, I served on her reopening committee and got a chance to see close up uh, the work that uh, was was uh, put into that and the thoughtfulness. So all in all, uh, you know, I think we've been good in the D.C. area. D.C. is interesting because obviously you have Maryland right. and Virginia. So we really look at the DMV and the governors of both Maryland and Virginia, while um, totally different styles and Republic, one Republican, one um, Democrat. Uh, you know, I think, again, when we put aside our politics, and we, you know, put um, uh, the health and safety first. They both have demonstrated as well, I think, very good leadership. Right. That's Howard University President Dr. Wayne Frederick, the 17th president of Howard, his personal story. I ended up reading a lot about him, Jason, just because I knew you were talking to him. I mean, just so impressive what he did on a personal level and professional level. Yeah, and this was one of these interviews that really stuck with me, and I highly recommend you listen to the whole thing on our podcast feed because – it was, as I said, wide-ranging, but also, as you alluded to, very personal. I mean, this is mm-hmm. something that he is dealing with as a leader, obviously the president of the university, as a community leader working with the mayor of Washington, D.C. 
but also as a father. And I think that's important to remember. Right. And you talked a lot about diversity and inclusion, as we did with our next guest, a voice we've reached out to before because of her firsthand experience with the virus, but also as someone of color and as a woman, her path to owning her own business. We get into that. That's right. Incredible health CEO, Dr. Iman Abuzaid. She is coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, Diversity and Inclusion. Carol, I have to say, very honestly, I think too many companies put it off to the side for too Mm -hmm. long. No more. We are talking about it all the time, and we should be. Yeah, exactly. And this week, uh, we caught up again with Dr. Iman Abuzaid. She's the CEO and co-founder of Incredible Health. Her company connects hospitals with nurses and other healthcare workers. She's been a go-to voice on the virus, but also about diversity and inclusion. And this time around, we talked about some research she did that stressed how we need to understand what the data is telling us to change the trajectory of diversity. We often hear that diversity is the right thing to do, but uh, the conversation needs to change to be that diversity is the data-driven thing to do. Um, as operators, as investors, we're accountable to shareholder, driving shareholder value. And so we really need to understand diversity in, in how, it, how it impacts business results. And so how do, you, how do you find and assemble the right data that proves that? Right. So the, there's a huge body of research that's already been published on, on this topic. And it includes from, you know, from Harvard Business Review, from McKinsey, from the Kaufman Fellows, and so on. And uh, lots of academic papers and research. And what they show is that diverse teams um, deliver better business results. They, are more, they drive more profitability. They drive more revenue. They're able to make decisions twice as fast. Um, they are more innovative. And ultimately um, drive higher returns for investors as well. And so, so that needs, really needs to be part of the, the, the conversation because we're all responsible for, for driving um, financial returns. So why isn't it part of the conversation? Because, you know, if, if the data don't lie, which <laughs> we are pretty confident it doesn't, let's stipulate that. Why hasn't this happened before? What are the entrenched interests that are essentially fighting this from happening? I think the challenges are, first of all, the, the awareness of the impact of diversity is pretty limited. Um, and so this, is, this piece was an attempt to kind of ex- expand the awareness of it. Um, and then the second thing is that it's hard. It's, it's actually quite difficult to pull off. It's challenging to hire a diverse team. So, you know, there's this concept of um, diversity debt, for example, which is similar to technical debt, in that it is much faster and quicker for, you, for uh, a leader to hire a homogenous team um, but then they're going to pay for it later because when they do want to hire that star, you know, black engineer, for example, it's, they're not going to join. And so it's critical to, to address diversity at the very beginning when you're just starting a team or just starting a company because it becomes increasingly more difficult over time. How much, too, is just unconscious bias? I'm not trying to give people excuses, but I do wonder a lot of the conversation, and you were kind enough to participate in a panel that we did with our Bloomberg Live and Bloomberg Breakaway team, a bunch of CEOs. We talked about diversity and inclusion, what needs to be done. But how often is it people just kind of hire people who they're comfortable with, whether they realize it or not? Look, the truth is it's human nature to have bias, whether it's unconscious or conscious. It's just part of being human. But, but, but that's not – we have to take that one step further and implement goals and processes that are going to counter that bias. And that is what we see the best operators and best investors do. 
So, for example, um, when, when uh, you know, you know let, let's say you're an investor and you're evaluating a minority founder, some top investors, including those at Andreessen Horowitz, NFX, Obvious Ventures, have put in place un- uh, bias checks. So there's another, an additional check that they do um, that's built into their process to make sure that they haven't missed anything with this female founder or this black founder. But how come then, wait, I got to follow up on that for a sec, Jace, because I, sure. how come then, you know, Iman, that there, if, if there's that awareness and they have those checks, why is it still in the world of venture capital that it's still largely male and white businesses that get funded? Unfortunately, there's still, it's still the tiny, tiny minority investors that have implemented some of these changes, whether it's the um, unconscious bias checks that they do. Um, whether it's making diversity a priority and, and, and measuring it, as well as fixing their sourcing by expanding their networks in order to, in order to um, connect with more black professionals and CEOs. First of all, making it an, an objective that, hey, we, we want a diverse team or a diverse portfolio. The second piece of it is um, when, when doing that you know, hiring process or that diligence process, you have a, a an additional check in the process, mm-hmm. and 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 the partner spent the partnership or the team spends more time on on, on a on an employee that or an or a investment that is diverse. Um, it's also built into a lot of our software as well, whether it's the investors or the operators. So there is a, there is a metadata or a check that this founder or this imp- potential employee is a minority um, person. So pay attention. And that's Incredible Health CEO, Dr. Iman Abuze, joining us once again. And I've loved the way our conversations with her, Carol, have evolved because I feel yeah. like we went to her to talk about one crisis and then we ended up talking more and more about another one. <laughs> and now we're really talking about where they come together, this nexus of these national crises. Yeah, we've really gone to her for a lot of different things that have been impacting our world over the last 18 weeks. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. We continue our conversation on diversity and inclusion, this time from the world of sports. We'll check in with the majority owner of Richard Petty Motorsports. They, in fact, announced a new deal on our show. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had across the week on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, Carol. Yeah, and one of the conversations we had to wrap up uh, this week is Andrew Merstein, founder, president, and largest shareholder of Medallion Financial. Uh, They're also the majority owner of Richard Petty Motorsports. They had some news this week about a really important sponsor. Here's our conversation. We're very proud at Richard Petty Motorsports to announce a new sponsor, which is Cash App, which is owned by Square, and of course backed by Jack Dorsey. They just signed on with us, and uh, it's a multi-year deal, and they're new to the sport. It's their first sports franchise that they're sponsoring. So what does that do to you (laughs) in terms of the financial equation? How does something like that change your story? Um, it changes it significantly. You know, Bubba, as you mentioned, is the first African-American driver in nearly 50 years in NASCAR, which is just remarkable to me that he's been the only full-time driver since literally the 1970s or so. And the sport is pretty much based off of sponsorship. My partner is Richard Petty, and if you remember, years ago, he had STP as his main yeah. sponsor, and it really took him to another level, and that's what we're hoping for. The world of NASCAR operates differently than other sports in that everybody has their own equipment. It's strange if you think about it. In football, you know, you use one football and 
use the same equipment, basically, but, but here you're building a car from scratch. So money is key, and sponsorship starts everything. Once you have the right sponsor in place, winning usually comes after that. So we have to talk about this Confederate flag uh, issue, if we can, Andrew. This has roiled the sport, maybe in an unexpected way, I think, for a big portion of the population it was long overdue for another part of the population a smaller part of the population significantly significantly smaller we hope it was an outrageous move on on the part of nascar how do you see it yes i'm very pleased you know frankly this all kind of started uh years ago at medallion financial um our board of directors was mario cuomo and hank Aaron, who actually just retired from the board recently and we look at different sports and, and see, um, you know, which ones really we could help in terms of promoting diversity. And NASCAR was at the top of the list. That's why we decided to invest in NASCAR about 10 years ago. So by us um, getting behind Bubba, it's really, I think, opening up a whole new spectrum of fans for the sport. The goal is, and I know it's just a goal at this point, but we would love for Bubba to kind of be the Tiger Woods of golf. Tiger transformed the sport brought in new fans, brought in excitement to the sport. And that's what I think you're going to see with Bubba. I've had calls from everybody from Jay-Z to LeBron James who love Bubba, want to be a part of what he's doing, and fully support him. But talk to us a little bit more about, you know, I want to dig a little bit deeper into this Confederate flag scandal. I mean, what does it say about motorsports in the United States and the controversy over it? And do you think NASCAR handled it well, to be quite honest? Uh, yes, you know, I, I think it was long overdue. Um, you know, the, everyone can have their own view about the Confederate flag, but it made for an uncomfortable atmosphere for many people in the sport, including Bubba. And Bubba is, I believe, the new face of the sport. And um, he stood up on uh, CNN and asked for change in the sport. And NASCAR took a giant step. You don't see other sports leagues really accomplish what NASCAR did. You know, the NFL... The NBA, they perhaps back down when it comes to issues like China. But here's a very different situation. NASCAR recognized that it was offensive to many people. Bubba went on TV, spoke about it, and two days later they banned the flag. So, um, you know, not everybody loved it, frankly. There's some fans who were against it. But overall, the sport, I believe, will rise to a new level. Andrew, I want to push you on that just a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure that many people... um, would say that NASCAR was progressive in this regard. Maybe some people would say that NASCAR was long overdue uh, in doing this. And, and certainly it's, it's a valid discussion to talk about player empowerment, driver, driver empowerment, in your case, uh, across the, the different sports. But as you, I think, yourself said, this, this should have been done a long time ago, I, I, I think you can argue. Yes, you know, I mean, NASCAR had a loyalty, perhaps, or a respect for their fans that have um, been with them for 50-plus years, and the sport grew up in the South. So they always recognized it was an issue years ago. They did try to take action, frankly. They offered fans the opportunity to trade in their Confederate flags for American flags. And some did, but it didn't overwhelmingly go over well. So you still have the Confederate flags there. But, you know, I'm proud to be associated with them. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with really any other leagues in the last 30 days that took such a major step forward as NASCAR did. 
you are constantly competing against so many different options, whether it's esports, you know, people's ability to do so many different things. And I think that's true of, of motorsports and NASCAR specifically, right? They're, they're fighting with, you know, some of the folks that might come to a NASCAR event. They've got a lot of other options. You know, how, com- how difficult is that making it for you all? Um, it's, you know, nothing new. I mean, that's always been the case, you're right. You know, we, we looked at investing in, in many different sports. Mm-hmm. We had one of the first sports funds back about 10 years ago. I uh, started a company called Sports Properties, and it was a SPAC before SPACs really became as popular as they are today. And we raised several hundred million dollars, and we probably looked at more sports teams than anybody. We looked at almost every league. And we ended up with NASCAR because I think it's different than many other sports. I, I like the business model of it. It's, um, you know, other sports, your payrolls, for example, are significantly higher. NASCAR, basically, you have one star athlete. It's probably the first or second best attended sport in the country behind the NFL. Its viewership is second behind the NFL. So it, it has a lot of promise, but to me, the key for growth is to expand their fan base. You know, they had a southern view originally and then it spread through other parts of the country but they still do not have uh, a multi-diverse fan base and i think if they do and they accept that's a challenge they'll go to another level well they kind of had to right i mean if if we take a look at some of the stories you know over the last year or so i mean there were concerns about the nascar audience right you know kind of declining nfl has dealt with it as well and so they needed to be supportive of Bubba. No, right? Because yeah, they do, I mean, as you said, they need to expand their audience. Right. I mean, you know, so certain sports have niche audiences. Uh, you know, hockey, for example, in my view, is a very niche audience, and they're not expanding their fan base like NASCAR is. So you can get by and do well with just a niche type of audience, but you're right. To get to another level, they really should open up their eyes, which they did, and take action and really try to make inclusiveness a big part of the sport. So, Andrew, let's talk about the the money that is in and around sports, because ultimately what we have seen is economics drive behavior. We talk about that all the time on this show, whether it comes to Facebook and big companies boycotting Facebook over their unwillingness maybe to police hate speech the way that some folks think they should. Economics drive sports as well. How much of what's happening now in NASCAR specifically is driven by the fact that you do have sponsors saying, hold on, wait a second, maybe we need to be more inclusive. Maybe we need to think about this sport in a different way. A lot. That, that's a good point. You know, even though we had the only African American driver, we still were not getting a lot of notice, frankly, until things changed for us. The tipping point for us was about 30 days ago when we had an empty race car because we didn't have a sponsor on it and we decided to put a black lives matter concept on the car in martinsville and the hood of the car read compassion love and understanding once that occurred not exaggerating we must have had twenty calls from major corporations within the next week after that Wow! asking more about who bubba is what's happening with the sport so the first one just signed on again about an hour ago with Cash App, but I can tell you there's many other interested parties at significant dollars. And once the dollars start, once somebody gets behind a driver, it's, these guys are all about momentum and confidence. And I, can, I know it's going to 
portray onto the racetrack that if he starts winning, more dollars come in, and that leads to better cars and then even more winning. So it's a great circle when you're going in the right direction. That's Medallion Financial CEO Andrew Merstein. They are the majority owner of Richard Petty Motorsports. And I feel like, Jason, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about NASCAR and Bubba Wallace and really the role of so many institutions and organizations and the world of sports when it comes to racism. Absolutely. And we're also talking about it, importantly, through the lens of economics and sponsorship. And so that's one of the reasons this was so interesting to talk to him on that particular day when Cash App comes in and basically says they're going to be a new sponsor because Bubba Mm -hmm. Wallace, all eyes are on him. He is very comfortable in that position. And so interesting to hear Andrew Merstein say, as you pointed out earlier in the show, this is the new face of NASCAR. Yeah, exactly. And Merstein did say he's working on ways to improve that pipeline for NASCAR drivers. So we'll continue checking with him to see about those improvements. Well, that's going to wrap up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily Bloomberg Business Week podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can get the full conversations like the one we had with Dr. Iman Abu Zaid, one of our go-to voices, a really important person to understand both from the virus pandemic crisis, but also the racial justice crisis. And also Dr. Wayne Frederick, the president of Howard University. I feel like these are important conversations for everyone to listen to. And speaking of conversations, check out more of the chat we had with Wondery Chief Operating Officer Jen Sargent. You heard her earlier in the show, but get the full conversation. She talks about why podcasts are taking off during the pandemic, how the listening, though, trends are changing. Hear that conversation in our extra podcast. And you can also watch the show live on YouTube, our daily show. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes. Their age. The way they speak. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council.